Kate and Charles both have health scares while Prince Harry drops a libel lawsuit and talk of royal abdication continues. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. The monarchy is set to all but grind to a halt for the next few weeks as Kate Middleton, the Princess of Wales, is recovering from abdominal surgery and King Charles III is preparing for a procedure on his prostate. So Prince William has also cancelled his engagements. He's going to juggle looking after the kids with being there for Kate. That leaves Queen Camilla. Um, she will be the only top-tier royal outworking. Um, she'll be supported, of course, by Princess Anne, the King's sister, and Prince Edward, and Sophie, the Duchess of Edinburgh. But obviously, in terms of column inches and newspaper headlines, and particularly interest in America and the royal family, um, that kind of unit of Charles, Camilla, William, and Kate, that is the monarchy. So there's lots to talk about here, but let's start with Kate. She is going to be out for a long time. She's got 10 days to two weeks in hospital, followed by around three months off work at home. So the earliest we're realistically going to see her back working out on the royal beat uh, is looking like sometime after Easter. Obviously, it'd be wrong to start speculating about another person's health. It is, after all, a private matter, and there are good reasons why the palace hasn't revealed her diagnosis. But I think it's fair to say, and also probably safe to say, that she's had something pretty major, and her recovery is also going to include a period in which her lifestyle will be very different. So you can't just kind of, you know, it's not that you come out of a major operation like that and you just need a rest you know it's that you can't necessarily do all of the things that you used to be able to do like you know after um, abdominal surgery which is what this was uh, you may for example struggle to pick up and hold and carry heavy things it's just one example um, and you can kind of also tell that there are going to be big lifestyle changes from the fact that William is taking all of this time out to be with her Clearly, if this was just a question of juggling the kids um, while Kate's in hospital, then he wouldn't have really needed to cancel so many jobs. You know, part of the the reason he's cancelling them uh, is because while the kids are at school, he's not free to just go out and pop and do a royal engagement in London. He's not free to go somewhere in Berkshire, close to home, do a, a royal job and then be back in time to pick the kids up after school. He's not free to do that because he's got to be by Kate's bedside, helping her adjust to this new uh, way of life for the duration of time that she's recovering. So, you know, that's going to be, I think, a big adjustment for both of them. Um, Clearly, there is a need for Kate to have some help around her, to have her husband by her side. Um, Obviously, you know, we do think of the royals as having kind of lots of butlers and maids and servants and uh, all of that kind of thing. But this is obviously a very kind of sensitive time. And, you know, it's a very personal moment. And I can definitely understand why Kate would want to have William instead of a staff member. There are reports of Kate doing some work in bed. I mean, I think that that would probably be very light work assuming that it's correct. Obviously, post-COVID, it's hypothetically possible that Kate and William could do royal engagements over Zoom. Um, That's what they did during the pandemic. But really, it doesn't feel like work is the order of business here. It's health first, which is fair enough. I mean, health is the most important thing you have. And there is one of the things about monarchy is that the personal and the professional just kind of blur into each other all the time. And this is kind of one of those moments, which is that... Kate recovering her health in order that she can at some point go back to being a working royal and, you know, running about the place and everything. That is a big part of securing the professional future of the monarchy, because obviously she is on course to one day be queen consort. So 
it's kind of not choosing to put health before duty is not actually necessarily to the exclusion of duty because the duty is for many, many years to come. So if you're securing that future, then you kind of are doing both at the same time. But yeah, I'm sure that, you know, William's not just going to be sitting there chatting to Kate and trying to keep her company and trying to keep morale high. He'll want to be really hands on with her, I reckon. And he'll be making sure that she's got all the stuff that she needs, get, you know, some a nice food. In all honesty, the hospital she's staying at, the London Clinic, seems to have exceptional food. You know, they've got fish brought in from Billingsgate Market, which is this world famous market in London. Um, where all the top, top, top restaurants get their food and, you know, Smithfield Market. So she's going to have really great food on hand, assuming she can eat it, because, you know, recovering from an operation is no laughing matter. Um, But assuming she can, she'll be very well served. But William will be helping her do the things that have become a struggle in the period when she's recovering in hospital. Now, of course, the other thing is that I'm sure the medical team will want to be monitoring her um, to ensure that there is no infection. You know, we're told by the palace in their official statement that the operation went well and that it was a success, but there is still that question, you know. With any operation, you want to make sure that there isn't an infection. At home, William will obviously have the help of their nanny, Maria Barolo. Uh, but also he's going to want to have, I'm sure, a really hands-on approach to the children as well, because that's going to be reassuring for them. Kids, young kids in particular, Prince Louis' age in particular, you know, they're obviously hugely sensitive when it comes to changes in routine, and there'll be no hiding the fact that this is a major change. So that can, can be scary for children. You know, they're used to everything happening in a certain way. They're used to mum being there at pickup, being there at the school gates, being really involved. And then all of a sudden, well, she's not, and it's not just she's not today and it's not just she's not this week it's that she's not really going to be for months and that can be quite daunting um it can be scary i think because well different children learn at different ages what the concept of mortality is but i think we can safely say that all three of kate and william's children will have come to come across this idea by now um so for example uh, children tend obviously to assume that they that their parents will live forever and that they'll always be there and it's kind of sobering for them I think when they discover that actually that's not true and that people don't live forever um, and that life is a finite thing um, now only Kate and William know exactly when that moment came for their children but George and Charlotte uh, and Louis obviously lost their great-grandfather Prince Philip in April 2021, Louis was obviously quite young then, George and Charlotte a little older. But then they also all lost their great-grandmother, the Queen, in September 2022. Um, and George, George and Charlotte went to the Queen's funeral. Um, Louis stayed home because he, he, you know, he was really quite young to be going to not just a funeral, but a state funeral where the cameras had been on him the whole time. Um, so I think really clearly, you know, all three of them are going to have an awareness of the fact that life is a finite commodity and that these two really important figures are no longer in their lives. Um, while at the same time, it's kind of hard for kids to understand the finer points of modern medicine. Like, why is it that sometimes a person can go into hospital and come out and be fine and another time it's really serious? Like, it's, it's quite difficult for them to understand the nuances there. 
And obviously, you know, you can try telling kids things until you're blue in the face, but what you show them through your actions, I think, is always much more important than the things that you try to tell them with words. And so if William was gone the whole time and they just weren't seeing him either, I think that they would be freaking out and really worrying that something was wrong. So clearly, I think William is going to have a huge role to play here in just really kind of showing George, Charlotte and Louis that there's nothing to worry about by being there on hand for them and trying to keep the routine as normal as humanly possible. Obviously, it can't be completely normal because mum's in the hospital for two, you know, for up to two weeks, but trying to keep it as normal because obviously he does, he does the school run too. So I'm sure that taking this time is the right thing to do. It's arguably, it leaves them open to allegations that, you know, if the monarchy can grind to a halt so completely, you know, what are they doing the rest of the time? But I think for the most part, people in Britain had a kind of instinctively caring and compassionate response to these announcements. And there's no real mood in the country currently of people sort of thinking that way, that there has been no backlash over this in Britain, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, But it must all be very sobering for William, really because obviously he lost his mother when he was 15 and Charles had to adjust to being a solo parent um, at a time when William and Harry were in need of a lot of comfort and reassurance. So Harry talks a little bit in spare about some of the ways Charles comforted him. One of which was that Harry was afraid of the dark. So he said he, he would tell Charles when he was going to bed and sure enough, Charles would be along a few minutes later and would kind of stroke his face um, to help him get sleep, to help him overcome his fear of the dark and get sleep. This is when Harry must have been like 12 or older. He was 12 when Diana passed away, and this was in the aftermath. Um, Charles would then also leave the door ajar so that when Harry woke in the middle of the night, there would be some light in the room to help him. So Charles clearly had his little ways that he tried to comfort Harry at this really difficult time. And he might also have had some similar uh, methods and, and tactics for comforting and reassuring William. And, you know, who knows, perhaps William might well be looking back on that period and maybe even his younger years too and thinking about the parenting that he received um, during a really difficult time and trying to, as he tries to think, I suppose, of ways that he can be a comforting solo parent, briefly solo parent, to George, Charlotte and Louis. Now, obviously, these two situations are very difficult because their three children aren't grieving for a parent who's passed away, as William was. But needless to say, I suppose... It's that kind of, William will have a sense of whether reinstating the routine was helpful to him, or he'll have a sense of what he needed in that incredibly difficult period. And I suppose that perhaps gives him a guiding light to help him understand what his children will need from him. And he will be able to look at Charles's you know, approach and see what he thought worked and what didn't. Um, but the king, though, also has a medical issue to contend with, which is that he has been booked in to the hospital for a, a procedure on an enlarged prostate this week. I say procedure because that's how the palace are describing it. And obviously, in the world of modern medicine, it, that doesn't necessarily have to mean an operation. There are other various less invasive ways that they can approach dealing with this. So it may well be that he's having something slightly less dramatic than actual surgery. Um, the palace also tell me that the king will be fully capable of discharging his full constitutional duties. So that means no need for kind of councillors of state. So to, the councillor of state is obviously quite a kind of royalese term. But to translate it into kind of plain terms, neither William nor Camilla nor anyone else for that matter is going to have to take the reins and act as king while he's in hospital. So being king, you know, obviously it's not as much pressure pressure as being prime minister or president. If you put the president under or the prime minister under anaesthetic for any period of time, there would be a chance that a 
foreign power might exploit that moment um, to launch a nuclear strike at a point when the only person capable of authorizing nuclear deterrent would be unconscious. So that's not the case with the king. You know, they're not going to need him to press the nuclear button while he's down. I think probably the most that would be required of him is to give royal assent to a piece of legislation. So all legislation that goes through Parliament has to be kind of signed off by the king. And it's really, you know, a formality because he can't withhold it. But it, they technically, it has to be signed in Norman French to denote the fact that the king has given assent to this piece of legislation. But obviously, like, that's not going to be so urgent that it can't wait an hour or two. So no councillors of state, uh, as far as I'm told. The uh, king obviously chose to reveal his actual diagnosis, though that was very surprising because they're usually incredibly private about health matters and put up a real wall around anything that's happening. So he chose to tell everybody that he's having a procedure on, you know, what to many people would be regarded as an embarrassing area of the body, but he wanted to basically encourage other men with symptoms to get checked out in the hope that they perhaps might have a better outcome. So if you're listening and you're a man, and particularly if you're of Charles's age, it's serious business. Um, and as far as I understand, there are lifestyle changes that you can make. Like, for example, if you drink less alcohol or drink less coffee, that can mean that you don't necessarily actually need to go to the hospital and have a procedure done. So good on Charles for giving that guidance. Uh, the two health announcements, though, they came right after each other. It was completely bonkers. I'm trying to report on it on Wednesday. Kate's came around 2pm. And obviously, there was a lot of frantic work around that and a lot to digest. And then there was this announcement from Buckingham Palace, which I saw in my inbox at about 3.30. And so I assumed, okay, yeah, sure, fair enough. That's going to be the king wishing Kate well, and also trying to reassure people. And then and I opened it, it turned out that actually, it was another hospital procedure. So uh, the impression came across, I guess slightly chaotic almost as though one hand didn't really know what the other hand was doing but to be fair I think that you know for the palace they do tend to think that the right office should announce these things so in other words Kate and William are based at Kensington Palace they have their own private office at Kensington Palace so therefore Kensington Palace announces for Kate and Buckingham Palace announces for Charles Um, I'm told Charles had royal engagements on Thursday that needed to be cancelled and that's why they kind of had to tell people because they didn't want it to leak out and I do actually understand that if these things leak it's so much worse and it looks like the palace are kind of trying to cover something up. And as soon as it looks like there's a cover up, then it becomes like, oh, goodness, well, that must be really awful. Otherwise, they would just tell us. So Kate was confirmed after the surgery had taken place, whereas Charles told everybody in advance because of the cancelled engagements. But there is potentially a plausible explanation for that, which is that obviously it's January. Uh, Kate's operation took place on the Tuesday of the week where Kate and William would ordinarily go back to work and start doing royal engagements again. So that in all probability, I would imagine there wasn't anything they literally had to cancel in advance. And therefore they had a much more of an option to just kind of wait and see uh, how the operation went and then decide what they were going to announce afterwards. I can kind of see why they might not have wanted to put an announcement beforehand. So it's one thing for Charles because he's telling everybody what the issue is. He's telling everybody his diagnosis. But if Kate had put something out before the surgery saying she was about to go under the knife and was expecting like a really long recovery time, two weeks in hospital, followed by three months at home, I think people would have known it was a serious operation and would therefore have been worried about something going wrong. 
um, people, you know, you can imagine people like flocking to the hospital, gathering outside to kind of wait for news or wish her well or whatever, almost like they do when there's a royal baby announcement. Um, and that might have just put a bit more pressure on Kate and increased her anxiety around the operation. And like, who's to say she wasn't worried about something going wrong? Maybe she was freaking out herself and didn't want to announce anything until she knew for sure the operation had gone smoothly. Um, because imagine if they if they're going to announce something like that, they would be under pressure to give some kind of an inf- indication about recovery time. And then let's say something had gone wrong, and then the recovery time turned out to be much longer than had initially been said. Well, then people would start speculating about you know some awful thing that had happened during this operation. So, you know, it's a difficult one for them to handle. But I think, needless to say, we um, found out how we found out. And now we face a long wait to see the three, well, three of the most senior royals back on engagements again. I mean, William and Kate really are the most written about and most photographed of the modern royal family. And Charles obviously is the king and Camilla is his consort. And it's only Camilla that we are going to get to see for the next couple of weeks or so. And it was actually, it was also not just Charles and Kate, because Sarah Ferguson, um, Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Fergie, who's still on um, good terms with him, um, and who is also, for what's worth, mother to Princess Beatrice and uh, Princess Eugenie, um, she has announced that she has had a second cancer scare. Um, She was diagnosed with breast cancer in the summer and had an operation. Um, At the same time, several moles were removed and one was analysed, prompting a diagnosis of malignant melanoma. So that's like a nasty form of skin cancer, basically. Um, so there's going to be further investigations. And she said in an Instagram post that she is in good spirits, despite the shock. So, I, you know, sincerely, I hope that those investigations demonstrate that they caught it early, that it was all removed, and that she has nothing to worry about in the future. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, the Mail on Sunday finally gets to chalk up a court win against Prince Harry. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Prince Harry has dropped his lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday for libel, marking the newspaper's first actual win against him. The score then is now Harry and Meghan 2, Mail on Sunday 1, with one court case still to come. This is a big moment for Harry though, because the Mail is saying they think that his bill for costs in this case alone will stretch to virtually $1 million, or £750,000 in UK currency. Now, he won a phone hacking lawsuit recently against the Mirror Group, 
Um, that was a big moment for him. He worked very hard on the case. He became the first royal to testify in a UK court in a case in which he was the claimant, I think, in history ever, and the first to testify in more than 100 years. Um, but he was only awarded £140,000. Now, these estimated costs are more than five times that. Harry's team are saying no costs have been awarded yet by the judge, so it's wrong to speculate. I'm completely willing to believe the male's figure is too high, but seriously, like even if they doubled the real number, it would still completely wipe out Harry's winnings from the Mirror Group case, and then some. Um, and that puts major pressure on Harry, because he then has to win a big load of cash from two of his remaining lawsuits just to break even. But worse still, I think there's another case that stands a strong chance of going south. Um, So the whole thing could very easily wind up being a big financial mess. Now, this is a really interesting decision on Harry's part. There's a few reasons why he might have done this. First, it was announced on the day he was supposed to hand over a whole load of documents to the Mail on Sunday as part of what's called Discovery. So Discovery, people may recall, was a fairly bruising experience for Meghan in her lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday. I'm going to talk actually a little bit more about that in due course. But essentially, it is hypothetically possible that there could be something in those documents that Harry just could not stomach becoming public. Something he just didn't want to tell his most hated newspaper about. Second, it may be that he was just never going to win in the first place. There was a hearing in December at which he tried to win by summary judgment. So that's like a quick win where you just say to the judge, look, this case is so overwhelmingly in my favour that there's no need for a trial because there's nothing that the other side are going to be able to do at trial that will win them this case. They're on a hiding to nowhere. The judge threw that out and the male was given the green light basically to go to trial operating a defence called honest opinion. You can't sue over somebody's opinions, basically. You can sue if they claim facts that aren't true, but you can't sue them over their opinion. I mean, maybe he just didn't think that he could win with that defence being given the go-ahead. His spokesperson certainly cited that defence in a statement released on Friday to outlets including Newsweek. Um, Third, maybe Harry just doesn't feel as strongly now as he did when he fired this thing off back in February 2022. It is the fastest lawsuit I have ever seen in my career as a journalist. It was filed four days after the news story was published. Four days. There's absolutely no need to file quickly. You can take a year. Well, it has to be within a year. So it really does feel that Harry kind of hit the roof, blew up emotionally, and then pressed the big red lawsuit button without necessarily taking all that much time out to think the whole thing through. Um, For what it's worth, this case for me has always been six of one and half a dozen of the other. I can absolutely see why Harry's angry, and I can absolutely also see why the Mail on Sunday thought they had a meaningful story to publish. So I'll explain both those points. But first of all, there's an overarching issue here that has always bugged me about this case, that I feel like I haven't done enough to kind of impress on people what's so futile about it. So defamation law... It's always been a massive lottery. The costs are extortionate if you lose. You know, people have lost their houses suing for defamation in Britain. And I'm not talking about people of limited means. You know, I'm not talking about ordinary folk or working class people. I'm talking about like government ministers, like a government minister within the time of my career lost a beautiful house not far from where I grew up in Islington because he sued the son for defamation and lost. And he lost his house. Um, They're pretty much almost always 
Right, the costs are almost always more than the damages. And so the figure the mailer quoted, 750k, seems kind of high to me for a case that didn't go to trial. Not necessarily at all high for a case that did, but um, it's, you know, it's not out of whack with other cases I've seen. I recall a case where 300,000 damages were paid to 650k costs to settle out of court for what it's worth. The allegation in the story was entirely true. And the celebrity who sued wound up being countersued to get some of the money back. Um, so, you know, defamation law is not actually, in reality, about truth and lies. It's about reputation. You can only sue if a statement lowers you in the estimation of right-thinking members of society generally. In other words, you're supposed to have been in some way damaged by the story that's been published. That is the point of defamation law. Harry has been written about since the day he was born. Uh, there have, were stories about him while he was still in the womb. Hundreds of thousands of news stories spanning 40 years. This one throwaway story in the Mail on Sunday was never going to have materially impacted his reputation. How Britain views Harry is really deeply entrenched, and it took an earthquake the size of Oprah to make a dent in it. The Oprah Winfrey interview, I mean, not Oprah herself, obviously. Um, it took, you know, them quitting the royal family to make a dent in his reputation. It took Spare, his biography, to make a dent in his reputation. He was absolutely, like him and Meghan were viciously attacked relentlessly throughout 2019, and it did not make a dent in his reputation. So one single throwaway story in the mail was never going to make a difference to Harry's reputation in the eyes of the British public. Everybody who has an opinion already knows what their opinion of him is. This was February, sorry, yeah, February 2022. I think it was February 19, 2022. By that point, Oprah's already happened. Like, everybody's made their minds up about Harry. There's no way it was going to change anyone's mind. And in order to have read that story, you have to be a reader of the mail, in which case you'll have read the thousands of other critical stories they've done, hammering him week after week after week. But what about the principle, you may be saying to yourself as you as you listen to me um, rant about it? Uh, well, look, absolutely no problem with the principle in theory, but that is why Britain has a press regulator called Ipso, which does not have this ridiculous extortionate costs lottery attached to it. You can file a complaint via Ipso, and if you lose, it'll cost you absolutely nothing. Zero. Zilch. It's completely free to use. And they can still force the newspaper to print a correction, which gives you your big victory moment from a PR perspective. Now, the counter-argument to that from people who uh, support press regulation is, oh, well, the correction and clarification that's printed is never the same size and prominence as the original story. It's just a tiny little thing on page 13 or whatever, or page 2. Um, it's, it's, it, it doesn't do justice to the, to the wrong that the person experiences. And to a lot of people, that's true, but not Prince Harry, because Prince Harry, every single thing he says and does gets reported on all over the world. So as soon as he's got the correction from Ipso, his own PR team can start putting that out to news organizations who will then report on it, and it will probably get one of getting more traffic than the original story in Harry's case, because it will turn into a great big media story. It'll be reported on blogs of The Guardian, Sky News, the BBC, ITV, news organizations in America, Newsweek included. Correction from Ipso can wind up getting a bigger audience for him because of who he is. 
but he had to do the bigger, more grandiose thing, and now he could be out of pocket to the tune of up to a million pounds. He has to start getting some perspective on these issues, because even if he'd won this case, it would have been annoying for the male, for sure, but two-thirds of British adults dislike Harry. It's not going to make a huge difference to their reputations, even if Harry wins, because... People just don't like him, so therefore they don't they don't agree with his various opinions on things. Uh, but this nukes him if he loses because he's the royal, like he's meant to be a success in every single thing he does. He's supposed to have a complete clean sheet and perfect record. So it was always madness suing over a fifty fifty case like this. And would it really have killed him to take a couple of months to think all of that through before pressing the big red lawsuit button? I mean, it wouldn't have taken anything away from the lawsuit when it emerged. So to recap a little bit, Harry is fighting to get his police team reinstated in Britain and he launched two judicial review lawsuits against the British government. And the Mail on Sunday broke news of the existence of the first of those two lawsuits. So that prompted a statement from Harry's side saying he offered to pay for his police protection team. The key bit is that he said he first offered to pay in January 2020 to his family at Sandringham. So that led many news outlets to report that the lawsuit was about his offer to pay. However, the offer to pay was not part of the initial rounds of the lawsuit, and it was only included later. So the Mail on Sunday did this story accusing him of spin, i.e. they were trying to say, oh, you only offered to pay publicly once we found out about your lawsuit to head off allegations that you were imposing on public funds by asking for your taxpayer-funded police team back. The mistake the Mail made was that they made no mention of the offer Harry made to his family to pay at Sandringham in January 2020. Um, so in other words, Harry offered, told his family, I'm willing to pay for police protection, but he didn't actually necessarily include that in his claim, in his judicial review that he filed against the government in its early stages. He added it in later. So, you know, the Mail on Sunday should have included that statement. They should have included that part of it. It was misleading that they didn't. But honestly, was it so terrible for the Mail to um, suggest the original statement from Harry's team was misleading? I mean, I kind of was misled in the sense that I came away from reading it with the wrong impression. I had no idea that the offer to pay wasn't part of the lawsuit at that time, as the Mail argued. Um, It was a surprise to me when I saw the Home Office make that suggestion that it wasn't included in pre-action correspondence or in in the original claim. Um, So when I learned that from covering that lawsuit, that original Home Office lawsuit, I was surprised. I I didn't know about it. So given that it was a confusing statement um, in terms of what it said about the lawsuit specifically, it's all a bit six of one and half a dozen of the other for me. So why on earth would you sue? He could have complained to Ipso and he would he would have had the chance to make his point. He might have won. He would now potentially be up to a million dollars richer. Like, let that actually sink in. If the male's numbers are right, Harry would be one million dollars richer if he had only complained to Ipso, the regulator, instead of filing another lawsuit. And he could pursue that right to the end. And it wouldn't matter financially because it would cost him nothing. So think how much that money would mean to an ordinary person. If Harry had complained to Ipso instead of suing the mail, he could have walked out onto the street in LA and given $1 million to a homeless person. And he would have been in the exact same position financially today. Only people would have thought he was a hero instead of a guy who filed a really pointless lawsuit. Like, it's 
dizzying the amount of liability has Harry has taken on in these cases in an effort to pursue justice against the media, which I totally understand and get. Obviously, Harry lost his mother and the media were um, substantially partly to blame. Not the only factor, but a very significant factor. I just don't think, though, that it's possible that he'll really get a level of justice that makes him feel that that wound has healed. Like, I just don't think there will be a point at which he feels that the wound has healed. Like, he, he I think, is reaching the point now where all of this is going to have to stop. But a big part of the reason it's going to have to stop is going to be financial or exhaustion. I don't necessarily think... I don't believe that his desire for justice has actually been sated. I think he's just been forced to engage with the reality that the risks he's taken on are not always paying off and that there have been a whole bunch of times when actually this has been very humbling or dare I say humiliating for Meghan and Harry in their 10 lawsuits that they filed since 2019. 10 lawsuits since 2019. So I just want to talk through just a few examples of just a handful of the bear traps that Harry and Meghan have walked into on their various journeys through the high court. So this is a non-exhaustive list. There will be examples that I've forgotten or just didn't include because I didn't want to go on about it for too long. So here is just a handful. So one of the biggest... Megan sued the Mail on Sunday over a private letter she sent her father. She won that case, but it went on for a very long time. Um, and along the way, she was forced to apologize. She, ha- Her lawyers had told the court that um, she had not cooperated with the authors of the royal biography Finding Freedom by Omid Scobie and Caroline Durand. Um, and then... Jason Knuff, her former former press secretary at Kensington Palace, gave a whole load of her private emails and messages to the High Court, which revealed that, in fact, she had authorised him to brief the authors on a whole load of points, which he had done. So she was forced to apologise. She said that she did not remember those emails and she had not meant to mislead the court. The son, however, Rupert Murdoch-owned UK tabloid, uh, wasted no time absolutely piling in on her about it and did a front-page headline in which they mocked up a picture of her looking like a Mr. Man character and called her Little Miss Forgetful. You know, I've not really done justice to the level of humiliation there because the messages that came out, she had given this whole spiel about, and her lawyers had to, about how this was, you know, this letter was the most private of private things. And then there were these emails in which she was saying she'd called him daddy to tug on the heartstrings if he ever leaked it to the media. Like she specifically wrote it for the purpose of it pulling on the heartstrings if it ever got leaked. So she won the case, but it was very bruising reputationally in the process. And Harry actually blames the male for Meghan experiencing a miscarriage in July 2020. I probably should be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt because um, the medical experts suggest that uh, <clears throat> those kind of stress factors don't cause miscarriages as far as the data shows. Um, but needless to say, you know, it was clearly an absolutely horrendous experience for her. So Harry also won this case I mentioned against the, against Mirror Group newspapers for phone hacking. But even then, like he won on 50, he submitted 33 articles. He won on 15 of them, but he also lost on 15 of them as well. 15 of those articles was rejected. And the judge made a point of saying that um, Harry had a tendency to assume that, you know, everything was suspicious. When in reality, that's not the case. There were reasonable explanations for some of those things. So 
In relation to one article, the judge wrote, one does wonder what kind of judgment was exercised when claims are pursued to trial in respect of articles of this kind. And part of what he was talking about there, the judge, is that Harry, in his live evidence, uh, the Mirror's lawyers kept taking him to examples where the stuff that he said, the factual claims he said could only have been produced by the journalists going off and hacking phones and doing illegal things. You know, they had been put out by Princess Diana's press secretary already, or it had appeared on the Press Association Newswire, or it had already been published by another news organisation. So in other words, it looked like the work on the case was incredibly sloppy, and that there were all these flaws in it that should have been picked up and should have been ironed out before it ever got to trial. So after he gave his evidence, there was this kind of humiliating backlash against him in the media. Now, obviously, he's very accustomed to backlashes in the media. But when a judge kind of reinforces some of what was being said about him, it really, I guess, leaves a bit of a sour taste in the mouth, despite the victory. So um, Harry filed two judicial reviews against the UK government over the Home Office decision to strip him of police protection. He's lost one of them. Um, so that's, you know, going to have costs attached to it and is also mildly humiliating. And then the other one, that's awaiting the outcome. They've had all the hearings. The judge has got to decide whether he's going to win it or whether he's not. I have a funny feeling he's going to lose it. But then there's also Harry's phone hacking allegations against the son were thrown out for being too old. You know, he's got that case is going to trial with his other allegations of unlawful information gathering, which I think he'll probably win, to be honest. But needless to say, you know, the cases are peppered with these examples of just little dents in his reputation or little humiliations. Like there was another one, Harry um, filed a libel lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday over a story they wrote about his relationship with the Royal Marines. The newspaper settled out of court, so that one was a win for Harry. But he wanted his lawyer to give a statement in court at the end of the case. And he tried to build the Daily Mail for 35,000 quid, 35,000 pounds for for a short statement read out in court. And the judge threw it back at him and said that was ridiculous and knocked it down to 2,500 pounds, saying some fairly unflattering things about him in the process. So there again, it's like you know a reputational injury out of nothing. Like There was no reason, need for him to incur that reputational injury. So as I've said on this podcast before, I think... Megan's lawsuit against the Mail on Sunday was also actually part of the reason why the bullying allegations were leaked about her shortly before the Oprah interview, for those who um, have been following closely. You know, that might sound crazy, but she basically told the court, the High Court in London, in the July before Oprah, which was in March, that she felt that Kensington Palace had left her unprotected while pregnant. This is what she put into a court filing. So because she'd done that, they had a very good idea what Oprah was going to be because she'd already fleshed out the bare bones of the argument in court. So they knew what to prepare for. And I, you, you've got to imagine that they would have felt emboldened to go nuclear and leak the bullying allegations because they already knew that she was absolutely dying to tell this story about being left unprotected while pregnant. So obviously, in a way, that's all by the by. That's all the past. That's all the history, but those are just a small potted handful of some of the holes, the wells that they've fallen down um, in their legal uh, journey. So Harry still has three more cases ongoing. You know, to most people, that would be a wild number of high court cases to have going at one time, but it almost feels like a small number for Harry. 
Um, one of them is this judicial review against the Home Office, which is still going. I just don't think he's going to win it. I don't think it's going to achieve anything if he does. I think the reason I think he'll probably lose is because ultimately the Home Office do have the right to decide to make an assessment and decide whether or not they think that he requires police protection, and they are not generally in the business of consulting every person they assess. Or getting them to make representations, you know, they they will be decisions made. I'm sure about politicians all the time. Um, but even if he wins, the most he can do is force them to take this decision again, which means they are perfectly entitled to simply make the same decision through a different process. So, in other words, if the judge rules in Harry's favour that it, it was unlawful that the Home Office decided to strip him of his police protection team. Um, without letting him make representations first, then all they have to do is let him make representations and then they can just take the same decision and strip him of his police protection team all over again. Um, But if he loses, there's going to be substantial costs to pay. Um, And the Home Office earlier in these proceedings, they said basically that the case should never have been brought and there was definitely a feeling coming off their court filings that there was a real zeal about the idea of recovering their costs in full. So, uh, you know, they suggested these costs would be substantial because there's loads of documents here and there there had to be loads and loads of redactions as well. So it's painstaking work to go through all of that and do all of that. And they um, submitted a kind of fairly angry court filing in an early stage suggesting Harry wasn't helping to the extent that he should have done. Then there's his case against the Sun for historic unlawful information gathering. So he, he initially sued for phone hacking. That was thrown out, but he still got this case then live against the Sun saying that they were doing other illegal practices, which includes trying to blag flight records and stuff like that. Now, I think he will actually probably win on some of his allegations, but then again, he'll probably lose on some too, which means there'll be costs associated with the ones he loses on. Then he's taken a really big swing at the Daily Mail. Uh, Again, historic phone hacking, wiretapping, all of that kind of thing. Again, I think he'll win on allegations that they blagged his ex-girlfriend's flight records. That's Chelsea Davey. It's too early to say whether they're going to win on phone hacking. I I just don't know at this stage, but it'll be interesting to see. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure, again, he won't win on everything, which means that there'll be a big chunk taken out for costs. So all in all, I just kind of suspect that at the end of this whole process, these lawsuits will turn out to have been very messy for Harry. Um, While actually the big winners will be the lawyers, as is ever thus, um, but also the media organisations who have been reporting on these cases will have probably wound up making as much money as Harry does. Um, because, you know, even the mail have been going great guns reporting all of these cases. One of the things that continually upsets and angers Harry and Meghan is the fact that all the while, you know, that these cases are going on, the mail's been reporting on them. But anyway, this is what Harry's spokesperson had to say about the dropping of this particular case, libel case against the mail on Sunday. So they basically said in December, uh, the High Court didn't grant Harry's application for summary judgment. Uh, If they'd been successful, that would have been it. Great win. But instead, um, the mayor will pursue this honest opinion defence, which they say is surprising, given the article was not labelled as an opinion piece. Uh, It was printed in the news section of the newspaper. Um, They say basically years have lapsed since this complaint was first filed, which I suppose is technically true. I mean, it's coming up to two years it's not quite two years, so it's not a huge amount of time in lawsuit terms, to be completely honest. I mean, some of Harry's phone hacking allegations date back to the 1990s, but there we go. That's what they're saying. Years have lapsed. 
since the complaint was first filed, in the time since the main hearing relating to the judicial review has taken place. So they're still waiting to find out what happens with that. And that is Harry's focus now. It's the safety of his family and the outcome of this lawsuit that's actually about his police protection team. Um, rather than these proceedings. And they also noted, which, you know, is a point I think I've made before, that it's given the mail a platform to kind of remake all of these claims which Harry thinks are false. So they can grandstand because Harry's filed this lawsuit, which is one of the points that was being made to Harry from the very first moment he started filing these cases. And it was, you know, supporters of Harry and Meghan were very dismissive of that idea initially, but it does seem that there is now some acknowledgement that there's some truth in it. So they also say that the costs that the mail are quoting are speculative at this stage because they've not actually been determined yet, which is fair enough. So I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, just a reminder to follow me on X. Uh, I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Princess Anne gives her views on the theory that King Charles should abdicate in favour of Prince William. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, I spoke a little bit last week about Robert Hardman's new book, which is called The Making of a King. It's out now, so if you want to buy it, do please go ahead. Um, it's published by Pegasus in America. I'm not going to go over the whole thing. I gave, a, obviously, a big chunk of time to it last time. If you want a broader brush take on the book, then please do check out my interview with Robert on Newsweek. We broke it up into a few different stories, but the bigger, long read version had the headline King Charles would love to have Harry back. Um, I did though want to talk a little bit about a couple of aspects of it that have been very widely read on Newsweek including the idea that Charles is only a caretaker king and we are effectively just waiting for William to take over. That was kind of part of the thesis of um, Omid Scobie's book Endgame. Um, obviously Hardman's book is very much on the other side of the fence Um more leaning pro-Charles, pro-William, and anti-Harry and Meghan. Um, softly anti-Harry and Meghan, but anti-them nonetheless. Um, realistically, many proponents of the idea that Charles is a caretaker king uh, have their eye on the possibility that there may at some point need to be an early abdication by Charles in favour of William on the grounds that William is more popular. So that, I think, is the kind of background context in um, through which we must understand comments quoted in the book by Princess Anne. Hardman's spoken to Anne, and that's Charles's sister. People may remember her from the crown. Now, she says coming to the throne in later life, which is what Charles has done, can be a benefit. She said, when you start much later in your life, inevitably you've got more experience to fall back on and you will have more opinions. Queen Camilla's sister, Annabelle Elliot, was also quoted saying, people keep talking about he's a caretaker and I don't see it. I don't see that at all. Knowing we'll see quite a few changes. So I think when 
Anne and Annabelle are pushing back on that idea of Charles as being a mere caretaker. It kind of has in the background this long-standing idea that actually predates succession that um, William's more popular than Charles and that Charles at some point should abdicate because this has been what polling has said dating back years. Um, The whole thing kind of reminded me of how easily the British media took to the idea that Charles might one day abdicate when the Queen of Denmark did that. You know, you may remember, if you listen to the podcast, that Queen Margrethe of Denmark threw in the towel, effectively, um, announced on New Year's Eve she was going to abdicate the throne within her lifetime and very recently passed it on to her eldest son. So this all happened in a quiet period in early January. So maybe that's why uh, media organisations took to it so much. But you had a British MP, Stephen Pound, on GB News, a heavily pro-monarchy channel, saying Charles would save the monarchy if he handed the crown to William. Uh, there were TV debates, headlines in all the papers, and it really seemed to catch people's imaginations. And then there's another expert extract in Hardman's book, um, which suggested William was not as religious as his father and grandmother, not as Christian, and hinted at the prospect he might not wind up being supreme governor of the Church of England, although Hardman told me that he thinks actually William will be um, but he, he, he's just less spiritual man. Um, but needless to say, again, you did not need to ask the British media twice. News outlets leapt on the story, and before you knew it, you had a former chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II on GB News saying that Prince William would have to abdicate if uh, he couldn't find it in himself to be supreme governor of the Church of England. This hypothesis was generally along the lines that that status is woven into British law, but not just in one law, in loads and loads of different laws. um, This chaplain said it would take 10 years to try to pull apart the uh, crown and the Church of England if William was not willing to perform that role. Um, But it's all uh, really quite bizarre to me because obviously saying all these things about Queen Elizabeth II would have been completely unthinkable. She was so revered, and yet some of the most monarchist outlets seem perfectly happy to have all these discussions during what you might expect would be a honeymoon period for Charles. You know, it's right at the beginning of his reign. We've just had succession. He definitely got a PR bounce in the immediate aftermath, and he had another PR bounce when it was his coronation. And that seems to have dissolved quite quickly, and already people are straight on talking about the possibility that he might go, or William could go now. Um, And it's bonkers. And it it kind of reminds me of what's been happening in UK politics recently, which is that, dating back, uh, a quick potted history of recent British political history... um, David Cameron was Prime Minister, and then the country voted for Brexit, which he didn't want, so he quit, and we got a new Prime Minister who no one voted for. But then Theresa May went on to get elected, but didn't do particularly well. She had a tiny majority, and she was given the heave-ho, and we got Boris Johnson unelected. He then won an election and was forced out, um, and we then got Liz Truss and she couldn't outlast a lettuce. She was so terrible, and she was forced out, and now we have Rishi Sunak. And they're already gunning for him again because the Conservative Party's politicians, their MPs, their lawmakers, they can taste blood now. Every time the party's fortunes fall flat, they basically immediately turn to this idea that they're just going to get rid of the Prime Minister. They become kind of addicted to just getting rid of their boss and trying to install someone new without an election. And it almost kind of feels like we had succession in 2022. And um, it was so dramatic And the idea of moving from one monarch to another now feels possible in a way that it just never did under the Queen. She felt so permanent in people's lives that 
happy. No one ever really imagined that she'd be gone or what that would feel like. She reigned for 70 years. You know, for most people in Britain, she has reigned for the entire duration of their lives up until September 2022. So now we've had one succession. Some people seem like they have the taste for it. And there's actually a kind of appetite for debates about the possibility of another, which is obviously awkward for Charles. I mean, I don't picture him being pushed into abdicating by anyone anyone in politics. And he's stubborn enough that it's very hard to see him volunteering. Um, But it's clearly a captivating idea for people. And that's enough to make it worth keeping an eye on for now. If it is... If it has people's imaginations, then it probably will surface again at some point sooner or later. And on that note, that is it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. 